and open up your booklets there. Session three, Confident in God's Resurrection. I recently read, um, there's a book titled Skeletons on the Sahara, and, and it was about these men, these American sailors living in the 1800s, that they, they sailed across the Atlantic and they were met with several difficulties there, but they ended up crashing off of the coast of, of Africa, uh, where there, there were these tribes that were awaiting them that tried to capture them, and then they escaped in this, this long boat and, and you know, found route to another area on the coast, but they were, ended up, they, they were picked up by slave traders and captured and, and brought into slavery, and then they were just sold to another uh, group of men. Um, but they began this journey traveling across the Sahara Desert, which is, it just was a harrowing experience of uh, starvation and thirst and uh, just the, the realities of, of life that they faced there. Um, but they, they ended up being picked up by these, these two Arab men, and, and, and they were slaves there, but they, they convinced them, if you, if, if, you, if you bring us across the desert, you bring us to, to this particular city, there, there are these men there that we know, and they'll pay you whatever you want for us to be released. So if you can bring us there safely, you, you'll be greatly rewarded if, if, if you do that. Um, but, you know, at this point, all they are are just slaves and with not much hope for living beyond that. But the thing is, they didn't know anybody there. Uh, they, they, they told the riskiest lie of their life, and, and, and the, the Arab man who was holding them in slavery said, all right, well, if, if, you're, if you're lying to me, blades going across your neck and blood's getting drained out of you, pal, because uh, you, you better not be fooling me here. Uh, now, now, what led them to do that, right? right? Why, why take that kind of risk? Well, because nothing else mattered, right? They, this was their only hope for survival in the end. And so they banked it all on trying to convince these two people to, to bring them to this, this location that somebody would pay for their release because there were no other options. It was a matter of life and death anyway. And, and when the stakes are that high, nothing else matters. And, and listen, life is like this. Life is not a game that we play. It, it is a kind of war. And the stakes are incredibly high. There, there is a real eternity that awaits us. There is a real heaven and a real hell and a real future. And what we do here and now matters. And I know that sounds kind of radical and strange and something you, you, know, you don't want to have to listen to as you, you, you know, wake up in the morning. It sounds dramatic. And the thing is, nobody really talks like this. Uh, not, not even much in the, in the Christian world, but we're, we're just content to live a normal life. But we need to have a, a radical flavor. We, we need to feel that is risky and strange because it's just far too easy to settle for comfort and success as the world defines it. And that's not unique to the teenage years. There, there is an epidemic of Christian young adults who, who just want a nice family and a nice house and a lucrative job and, and the priorities of the kingdom are distant. 
but you're particularly susceptible to this during the teenage years to waste them, to, to put off until later what is hard and demanding and unusual. And then, guys, you might find in life that that later never comes because when, when you've settled into comfort, it's hard for that to change, right? You know, when you're, when you're in your bed and you're underneath the covers and everything is, is cozy, and I know right now that's just where you want to be. <laughs> uh, but, it, but it's hard to, to remove from that location because you, you've already gotten comfortable there. And so if, if, you can, if you can center your life now in these years with the priorities of God's kingdom, and, and the, the demands that that has for you, you, you will take that with you into the rest of your life. And so here's a, a question for you to consider today. What kinds of aspirations do you have for your life? What do you want to see God do in your life this year? Or what about the next 10 years? What kinds of ambitions do you have? Do they extend beyond, you know, beating some video game or completing some challenge in an app or succeeding at sports or looking good and being liked, getting certain people to, to appreciate you and affirm you and, and win their approval? Does it extend beyond getting good grades and going to a decent college and, and getting in and getting a job? And, and, and look, all, all those are, are good things, but, but God has called us to more even in the midst of those things. What God has called us to requires boldness. It takes a willingness to be taken out of what is familiar and feels secure, a willingness to face difficulty and possible ridicule and maybe even death. It comes at a great cost and yet with great Reward. It comes from confidence in God's resurrection, and that's what we see here. So look, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, says this, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man... And him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received what is promised. Right? And I'm not necessarily going to develop that this morning, but that's an important part of what Hebrews 11 is trying to argue here. Because you have story after story after story of these individuals who, who ventured out into significant things, things that, that required everything that they had, and, th and they did so banking on something that was to them invisible. Because they died and they never met the Messiah. 
They never saw the fulfillment of what God had promised in full reality. They only had a glimpse of it from afar, and yet that was still enough for them to say, I will lay it all on the line. And so he, he's writing to this, this particular audience in Hebrews who has received the promise. And he's saying, your position is, is so much more beneficial than theirs because Jesus has come. And, you, and, and you, you get the fulfillment of everything that God had promised in the Old Testament. And so you're in a new place than they are. And all of that was pointing forward to what God would make available to you. But he says, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. For if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, right? That, that, that's just an amazing statement right there. God is not ashamed to be called our God, and that's true of us as we are not ashamed to adopt for ourselves and for our life what he has called us to. So, he, he presents this, this picture, right? They, Abraham in particular, he's, he's leaving home. Abraham, I want you to go. Where am I going? I'll tell you. You just go. You, you leave. You know, here's, here's this man. And no, again, these are, these are old Testament characters, and we can kind of make them feel like they're just fictional stories or something. There's just this guy, Abraham, that he's a cartoon character or something. This is a real person. Who, who had real ties to family and business and, 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 and something that had been built up. You know, I know you guys, when you, when you read the Bible and you come across those genealogies, you, your eyes just kind of glaze over and you're not really sure what to do with that. But, 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 but Genesis chapter 11 gives the genealogy of, of Abraham. And it says this person was the son of this person, was the son of this person, fathered Terah, fathered Abram. And, and it shows you, th these people have been around for a long time. They, they built something in the land of Ur. That's where he was from, Ur of the Chaldees. Generations, and, and, and he's a leader, and, and, and Abram means, means father. And so he, he, he was given that name by his, by his father in anticipation that, hey, man, you're going to be the beginning of something significant here. And perhaps all of his life he had been raised with the thought that he, this is where you're going to build and this is what's going to be familiar for you. And God says, hey, you know what? That's not my plan. My plan is for what you to leave behind everything that you have known and, 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 and take what you can with you on the way and wander off. But my ultimate plan for you is really good and it's going to make all of that pale in comparison, but he had to, he to head to a, a foreign land to do that because he was ultimately looking for God's city. Now, here's something uh, for you to consider, and, and guys, I'd like for you to just write down this question. I don't think it's in your notes, but uh, take out a pen if you've got it, put it on the paper, or just mentally put it in your head somewhere. <coughs> here's the question. Is there something, maybe even something good, that God wants you to leave behind. 
because it competes with his purposes. What's your land of Ur that God is calling for you to leave behind? All right, second question for that. Is there something new and unfamiliar that God wants you to be doing? You're just going to allow the normal features of your life say, yep, yep, more of the same. It's just always going to be more of the same. Or is is there something that God wants you to begin that you've never done before? Maybe you haven't even conceived of doing it. Or maybe it's been in the back of your head and you've kind of known, I should, I should be about that, but I just never have ventured there. Or are you just allowing the culture to supply for you the values of what you're supposed to be doing right now? Now, in order to do what Abraham and these characters do here, you, you need to be willing to feel displaced on this earth. If you are so attached and so tethered to the stuff of this world, then you're not going to do what they did. They, they were described as strangers and exiles on this earth. Right? You, you guys know that there, there are all these kind of immigrant characters that get made fun of in cartoons and TV shows and stuff. Somebody's got a really, really strong accent, doesn't understand the culture, doesn't really fit in. They say the wrong things and they, they you know, the phrases they, they misuse and end up saying something dumb. And, and that, you know, that person becomes the butt of the joke because they, they don't really belong here in, 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 the, in the full sense of, of like, they're not just like everybody else. And, and, and Hebrews picks up that word, and it applies it to all of us, right? You're the person, you're, you're the kind of people, you don't look like everyone else, you don't sound like everyone else when you talk, you don't dress like everyone else. And the question is, are you okay with that? Are you okay with that being true of you? Because if, you, if your hope is just to fit in with the people around you to go, unnoticed, just be among the crowd at best, then you'll never do the kinds of things that are in Hebrews 11. My question for you is, 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 do you want to be influential? Do you want to be a person who is useful in God's hands, who serves people that, that people look to and say, you know what, I, I bet they have some insight for my needs right now. And, and I want to be close to them. I want to follow them, right? I think there's something in, in human heart that desires that, and it's there by God's design because we were made in his image, and we were be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with his image and, and exercise authority over things. But a lot of people, they, they want the power of influence. They want authority, but they don't want it in the way that God has it arrived, right? I said that in the first session that book by uh, Andy Crouch, Strong and Weak, that there, there, there's this paradox in Christianity of strength and, and weakness, of, of authority and vulnerability. And, and the biblical word for that is, is faith. But the world's definition of somebody who is influential is, is, the, is the person who's got you know, the power, the money, the social ability and standing, and they're able to call the shots and be impressive but you guys know, I mean, there, there is an emptiness and there is something hollow in all of those. Those are, those are the people that were described in that quote last night as they become nasty when they get what they want. But if you want to have a lasting 
influence on people. That, that's going to require embracing something vulnerable. You, you cannot influence this world ultimately by blending in, by just living contentedly in the spirit of this age. And when I most need help in life, and I often do, you know, the kinds of people that, that I look up to, I'm not necessarily looking for somebody who's cool. Uh, I'm not necessarily looking for somebody who knows all the jokes from late night or whatever, you know, and then those people, are, they're fun to be around, right? I, there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not toward the top of the list of what qualifies you to be an influential person. doesn't matter if they know how to dress. When life hurts or is confusing, I need somebody who is strange. I need somebody who is countercultural, who's been near to God and has come away being shaped by that and who is upside down in this world. And those are the kind of people in Hebrews 11 and who fill up church history. I was reading uh, John Piper's book, A Camaraderie of Confidence, just kind of in preparation for this weekend, but he, he gives uh, biographical sketches of, of three people, of Charles Spurgeon, George Mueller, and Hudson Taylor, and, and I don't know if you, what you know about these men, but, but they accomplished some amazing things. Uh, George Mueller, in, in, in particular, among many other things, including overseeing the, the work of translating scripture and traveling to 42 countries as a missionary, he built Five large orphan houses, right, just uh, toward his heart was caring for the fatherless and those who were deprived and in need. And, and, and the situation that he lived in, the, 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 the care for orphans was just terrible. Actually, George Mueller knew Charles Dickens. And again, you know, if you're familiar with the Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens wrote Oliver Twist, and he just had a, a heart for the orphans, and, and he has, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge's character say, oh, just send them all to prison. But he's describing something about how people felt in that day that they lived, and George Mueller said, I'm going to turn that around. And he utterly transformed the way that the, the nation of Britain treated orphans. And during his lifetime, he cared for 10,000 different orphans. It required millions of dollars in today's terms in order to fund this over the course of his ministry, and he never asked anyone directly for money, and he almost never took any personal salary from this. He just prayed, and God provided, and they never went into debt, and they never went hungry. He did all this while he was preaching three times a week from 1830 to 1898, at least 10,000 sermons in the midst of all this. And I know we think that we're busy. Uh, we think there are a lot of demands on us. Uh, but, but what creates this in somebody? Because when I hear that story, and it's something strange, right? It's something unusual, and yet that's just a normal human being like you and me. What does this, with this willingness to be spent in this way and to use risk-taking methods that don't line up with what the culture expects? Well, John Piper describes it like this. In some ways, Charles Spurgeon, the greatest preacher of the 19th century, and George Mueller, who cared for thousands of orphans, and Hudson Taylor, who founded the China Inland Mission, were men of their amazing age. doesn't mean they're old men. I'm talking about 19th century Britain there. 
In other, word, in other ways, they were exiles on the earth, a camaraderie of confidence in something beyond this world. This is not an exceptional statement since the same could be said of almost every Christian who believes the gospel and wants to serve the temporal and eternal needs of his fellow man. The roots of this simple observation are in the Bible. On the one hand, we are told that Christians are sojourners and exiles whose citizenship is in heaven. On the other hand, the Apostle Paul said, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Not surprisingly, fruitful Christians are people of their age and yet also people out of step with their age, right? You're, not, you're, you're of this age, which means you don't just say, hey, let's all pack up and live on an island and have some sort of Christian community where we wear white robes and, and do weird stuff, right? That, that's not God's plan for our lives. He wants us in the world. He wants us there and, and active and in this culture and understanding it and understanding how to reach it, and yet he wants us also to be fundamentally out of step with this world system. But to do this like them, you have to desire a better country than just selling down in the real estate of this fallen world, right? Their, their definition of hope and belonging and comfort and home and reward had an eternal timetable. And, and, and the author of Hebrews is, is giving these illustrations because he's helping them, right? This is what they were experiencing. We, we had looked at this last night, Hebrews 10, verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. I mean, can you just imagine this? People are showing up and they're taking your clothes and you're taking, taking your iPhone and you're, they're, they're taking your Xbox and they're taking your dog and whatever, right? And, 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 and in the midst of that, there can be joy because there's a greater reward that can't be taken away. And he's saying, hey, that was you. And you, you've, you've lost a little bit of this you're tempted to throw this away. Don't do it. Don't trade in the better possessions to cling to stuff that's just going to rust and get out of date and is planned to be obsolete. I mean, why, why, are, there, why are there seven versions of the iPhone? Uh, on the one hand, technology is advancing. On the other hand, these things are built to only last so far, right? It's called planned obsolescence in, tech, in, the, in the tech world. Let's design something that is going to break so that you have to buy the next one. And, and hey, th these things are good. They're, they're fun to have. But our hope is in stuff that will never become obsolete. I like this uh, Switchfoot song, If the House Burns Down Tonight, on their latest album. And, and this is what they say, Ashes from the Flames. 
the truth is what remains. The truth is what you save from the fire. And you fight for what you love. Don't matter if it hurts. You find out what it's worth and you let the rest burn. They say there's a fire coming that we will all go through. You possess your possessions or they possess you. And if the house burns down tonight, I've got everything I need when I've got you by my side and let the rest burn. Right? He's saying there, if I've got the people that matter in my life and I, and I, I have them and they're there and they're protected. And ultimately, if I have the truth, set a match to everything else if, if need be. Let it burn, because that's not what has me. That's not what has my hope. Right, second, they, they were fearless in the face of death. So they, they were content to live out of step with this world, and they were fearless in the face of, of death. And you see this in Abraham's life, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Right? God had told Abraham, through Isaac, that is how my work of blessing and redemption and salvation is going to invade this world. That's my plan. Through Isaac and through as many descendants as the stars in the sky. And then the next conversation, he's saying, take him and sacrifice him. Why was Abraham willing to approach that mountain? Because he really believed what God had said. God is not going to go back on his word. He is going to be true to his promises. Look at what, what it says in Genesis 22, verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, that's a little, doesn't come through as much in this translation. All right, let me help you out. I and the boy will go over there. And we will worship, right? That's plural verb. And we will come again to you. And, and there's, a, there's a little piece of a phrase attached to the verb that in Hebrew adds a sense of direction and certainty to it. And so you could, you could translate that. We will go there. We will worship. And we will certainly come again to you. Is he just bluffing here? He is convinced that no matter what's going to happen on that mountain, this is the child of promise, and he's not staying dead. And the author of Hebrews says that he was convinced that even if necessary, God would raise up Isaac from the dead. And he says, essentially, that's what, what happened. He received him back from the dead because a replacement was, was given. He He's convinced that God's promise would prove true. And, and when you are confident in the rescue and safety of God, it causes you to face some deadly circumstances. And, and, and just Hebrews 11 trails through 
uh, a group of characters that did that. And, and some of them are like B characters in the Old Testament. They're not necessarily the, the go-to people. Their names show up there. But when you're thinking of like Abraham and Moses, those are the big players. But what about people like Moses' parents? Right? Verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, that might sound a little backwards. Right? Didn't they hide him because he was afraid? Well, well the, the king's edict was you turn in every child that's born. The midwives were supposed to deliver them over to be thrown into the Nile. And they hid Moses. Yeah, sure, they, they were afraid that their child would be killed, and so they hid him. But they were not afraid of the edict that, and if you don't do so, you're going to die. And they stared death in the face, and they were undeterred. It goes on to say that, that Moses wasn't afraid of Pharaoh either. He endured seeing him who was invisible. What about, uh, just, to, just to select from another one here, what about Rahab? You remember her living in Jericho? Rahab was a prostitute. And, you know, you, you, you can't think of maybe a more vulnerable position to, to have in society. Just somebody who's used, somebody who's got no standing or power, Right? She, she's totally, you know, at the will of, of, of other people and what they do for her life. And yet, you know, she, e even with that, she's not somebody that's got resources and strength that would maybe say, yeah, I'll be the person who hides the spies. She's got nothing. And yet in faith, she says, you know what? I'm going to stand with the people whose plan is to walk around this city seven times and shout. I mean, this is just a Bible story to us, but can you, can you put yourself in this position? All right, so your plan is you're going you're gonna to walk around the city and you're going to blow some trumpets and then the walls are going to fall down. All right, great. I will risk everything to help you guys. There's something that she saw in God. There was faith in this real God who is active and who is at work. And she, she does this, verse 31, by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she gave a friendly welcome to the spies. And then it goes on to say, verse 32, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Right? Stopped the mouths of, of lions and, and quenched fire. Those are the stories of Daniel and and of his friends. Daniel, who was told, if you're seen praying to anybody but the king, you're getting thrown into the lion pit. And, and it would have been so easy for him to just say, yeah, I'll just kind of like pray in my head and make sure nobody notices. And you know what? It might not have been wrong for him to do that. There, there are some circumstances where, where that's okay. But he said, no, the... the, the 
if, if, if this is what's being asked of me here, ultimately they're asking for my allegiance. And he opened his window and he prayed out toward Jerusalem for everybody to see. And he was thrown in among the lions. And he was confident that God would rescue him. The three men in the fire, it's funny, Grace uh, last night asked me that question when, uh, when our lit party showed up to our fire. Uh, who were the three guys who, who were in there? She was kind of helping them understand, this is who you're dealing with here. This is a church group. And hey, I, I like that. That was, that was good. There, there was something gutsy about that. Uh, but these guys, I mean, again, it, 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 compromise comes so easy. It can be so easy to justify What's a quick bow? God understands. He really wouldn't, us, wouldn't want us to be burned alive, right? So just going to bow, get it over with, apologize later. That would have been so convenient. And they said, our God is able to rescue us from that fire. But even if not, O king, we are not going to worship anybody but our God. Let us burn if you need to, right? Only the truth remains. Even your body can burn in the fire and the truth remains. But God was the fourth man in the fire. We are immortal until our time has come, right? Nothing can come your way. Not even death itself can come your way before God has planned it. And there, there should be a sense of safety in that. There's a story of... Uh, time when John Wesley, he was one of the, uh, part of the Great Awakening revivals, when he was preaching, and, and there were two men in the crowd who, who wanted to kill this dude, right? Because he would stand before crowds of thousands, and he would call for them to rep repent, and, and, and listen, you, that takes courage to do that, because you make enemies fast. You, even, even important religious people, he was telling them, yeah, I know you're the pastor of a big church somewhere, but you're not even converted, because you are stale and cold, and there's nothing of the truth in you. Dude made some enemies saying things like that. And so there was one guy in the crowd that had a knife and was just waiting for the opportunity to lunge at, at Wesley and stab him. And there was another guy in the crowd who had a boulder that was going to just launch it at the dude. Well, <laughs> everything was timed perfectly that the moment that the guy was lunging forward with his knife was the same moment that the other guy launched his boulder and nailed that dude in the head and knocked him down. <laughs> it's, everything just happened right on cue because nothing can come our way before God has planned it. But what he does next is he, he transitions from stories where God's rescue was clear here and now to stories where it looks like everything falls apart in failure. Look at verse 35. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Right? That, that seems like that's a good end of the story. But it says some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Right? Comes to the end. They are tortured and they die and done. End of the story. But not really. They're, they're looking for something even beyond that. Some future day where resurrection 
comes. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dims and caves of the earth, not having any sort of home here. And, and let's be honest. Does that sound like good? Is that a good thing? Right? Is it, nobody's like asking for and praying for that to be the story of their life. God, may I be homeless? Maybe some of you will end up homeless if you can't get your grades up, you know. Uh, no, <laughs> nobody's ever been homeless for failing geometry or something. Uh, it's not happened, so you're, you're okay there. But with natural eyes, only looking at the visible realities, everything looks like it has gone into the trash. It looks like failure here. I mean, just the, 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 the stories of Jeremiah and Isaiah, that, that's what he's talking about there. And he talks about those who were stoned. Jeremiah, he was called to be a prophet to, to the nation of Israel to warn them and say, hey, look, Babylon's coming, and, and you guys just submit. This is God doing this. He's going to send us into exile. The more you try to fight it, the more painful it's going to be. And, and he's preaching for them to repent and return to the Lord. He had like two, two people who converted to his message, and one of them was his scribe. One of them was like paid to work for him, and everybody else was like, see you, Jeremiah. We don't want to hear what you have to say. And that eventually he was taken away from his home and ended up in Egypt and was stoned to death. End of the story. Or is it? The prophet Isaiah, under the, the king Manasseh, the king of Israel, had said that he, he filled up the city with the blood of the righteous, right? That's the kind of persecution that was going on there. It says that he was hiding inside of a tree and they came and they found him there and they, they sawed the tree in half and cut him in half along with it. He died a painful and humiliating death. It reminds us of somebody else who would die a painful and humiliating death on a tree. This doesn't make sense. It looks like such a waste unless there really is resurrection. Unless there really is this hope that he describes a better resurrection that eclipses everything that gets described as failure here and now. And he says that's not the end of the story here. There's more to come. There's an eternity that awaits us, and faith sees more than just the natural circumstances in it. It sees power that's made perfect out of suffering. It sees life out of death. You know, Paul said that to live is Christ and to die is gain. I mean, when somebody is convinced like that, when that's where their confidence is, what can you do with them? Right? We're going to kill you, Paul. Well, to die is gain. All right, well, then we'll let you live. Well, to live is Christ. Like, you, you just can't mess with the dude because of the stuff that you can mess with is not what he is living for. He sees something beyond this. And, and listen, I, I know, look, we, we, we live in 21st century America, and the, 
realities that we, we face, and, and we might not be staring at death in the same way that these guys are. But you're, you're, you're all facing a kind of death. What is that for you? What, what is it that requires a, a death to yourself, a, a death to ease, a death to your definition of, of normalcy in life? Right, we've raised this question this week, and where does God want to awaken this kind of confidence in you? What kinds of risks does he want you to take? And we're all built differently. We all have different appetites and things that we're attracted to and fears, stuff that we want to avoid. And so definition of a, of a good life, it shifts according to your personality, the kinds of situations that you run toward, and that you run away from. It might be polar opposites, right? Some of you guys have no problem speaking your mind. Others, like you would never send back food at a restaurant or have any sort of confrontational uh, discussion. It's like, in fact, I don't even want to have to speak. If I can just do sign language or some other way of communicating, but just don't put me in a situation where things are unscripted and I have to speak up and I have to argue a point or make a case Right? You've got a category of, of, of life that you tend to avoid. And, and because you perceive there, there, there's, there's the possibility of failure there, I could screw up and I could look like a complete idiot. And so I'd rather, I'd rather just not do that. I'd rather stay in the seats because I, don't want, people, I want people to find out that I, I don't really have it all together and I'm kind of pathetic, right? <laughs> no matter what it is, to, to, to venture into something that God has called you to do, you have to at least risk looking lousy because that's where it starts. You have to risk failure in order to approach what God has for us. Listen, I think that there, there are ways that God wants to stir up spiritual gifts in our midst. Gifts of encouragement, right? And, and, there, and there's a risk in that. It's not the kind of risk that these people were facing. But, but in the midst of everybody being cynical and making fun of one another and, and, and joking in that way, and like, you know, there, there are good aspects of that and there are some problematic aspects of that as well. But to be a voice of encouragement, to be the one who steps up and, and identifies something in somebody and says, hey, when you did that, when you acted in that way, when you were kind like that and you served, you know, something of God was seen inside of you, right? That, that, that takes a risk because then you're, you're that person who's, who's doing that or you don't know how they're going to receive that or what they're going to think or how that's going to change how you are viewed. But to, to use any spiritual gift, right, to maybe the Lord has is, is given you a sense of, of an impression for somebody's life and, and to say, look, I... I don't really know what to do with this, but I just have this sense that this is what you're walking through. Can I pray with you? Can we talk more about this? And you don't know what they're going to do with that. But if, if, we, if, if we can't get past this, we're, we're never going to do anything like what's described here. And, and listen, this is normal Christianity. We don't get another version of it. Christianity that you and I have placed our faith in. It is in a Savior who 
suffered and died and was raised and then says, follow me, follow me where I have walked. What, what are you avoiding out of fear? What kind of people are you afraid of? Hebrews 13, 6 says, so we can confidently say, we can confidently say this, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can they do? What can they actually do, right? At, at, at most, they can make fun of you. They can think you're retarded. That's probably likely what you're going to face. But beyond that, what Jesus says, he says, hey, don't fear the person who they, they can kill the body and that's all they can do. Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Fear him. And then those other people in your life, they won't seem so big. But you hear what Jesus is saying there? He's saying, yeah, the worst they can do is kill you, but they can't do anything after that. I mean, this is a radical way to think. But if you can get this inside of you, you can just get a piece of this inside of you. You know what God's going to do in your life? You'll never run away from opportunities to advance his kingdom out of fear. If you just believe that, the worst they can do is kill me. And it's unlikely that that's going to happen. But even if it does, you know what? Let it burn. It's not that bad because there's something greater that awaits. Listen, I know this is hard for us to process, but it may be the case. I don't want us to escape this. It may be the case for some of us in this room that the call to die for your life is more than a metaphor. That's true of, of all of us in the sense that the day will come when you die. And the question is, are you, you going to die in faith like this? Are you going to die clinging to what you can get here and now, the hopes that you have? But, but listen, there, there are people throughout history, throughout the 21st century, people around the world today that are staring in, staring at a sword or staring at a machine gun, and they're being asked, hey, you, you Muslim or are you a Christian? What are you going to say next? There are, there are real young people. There are real people who are 13 and 14 and 15 who are facing that in this day. Do, do, do you think you're special because you live on another piece of geography than they do? You think they've got a different version of Christianity than the one that God has given you? And they stare in that barrel and they say, Jesus is Lord. And they die in faith. I don't want us to be pretending that God would never ask that of us. Clearly he does. There, there are people that are Stepping into unreached people groups, they're going among scenarios that are, that are violent and threatening, and they're saying these people, the vast majority of them, don't even know that Jesus exists. They, they've never even heard of his name before. What's going to be done about that? And there's a sense of urgency, right? They're, they're, not, they're not just living this normal life 
with small aspirations and small dreams. If I could just survive middle school, right? <laughs> There's something bigger that's won them. And they're saying, what are we going to do about that? What language do I need to learn? How can I, how can I relocate? How can I step into, into that scenario and get the truth to them because this, this life is so short and it's going to be done and there's a real eternity and there's a real hell that awaits people who don't know him and I'm not going to just sit by in my comfort and let that happen. And they're saying, what do I need to do to give my life to this and maybe give it all the way? And maybe God wants to awaken that in you. You know, I don't find, I don't find in this generation to the same extent a desire to serve the Lord in, in, a, in a way that, that puts a demand on everything in your life and your career. And I want to be careful of how I say that because I think a mistake of previous generations was to create this sacred and secular divide. Where it's like, you're either a pastor or a missionary or you're a dentist if you really hate God. You know, <laughs> it's, uh, God, God wants every person, no matter what you do, no matter if you, if you run a business or you go into marketing or you, you, you become a healthcare professional, no matter what you do, God demands all of your life and you serve them. But I, I, my concern is, is the reason why I don't hear people saying, I want to be a pastor, or I want to be a missionary. I want to, I want to go in a foreign land. That, that just used to be more normal as a desire. Is it because we've settled for, I, I want to be in my 20s and have a decent career, and I want to be in my 30s and own a nice home, and I just want to be around my family and hope to get some money and some good possessions and it's not so much this, this large vision of serving God no matter what you do that's leading you to that thought process as much as just that's normal and comfortable. And of course, God wouldn't want anything else from me, right? Because he just wants to me, me to be happy and comfortable. And I just want to agitate us a little bit about that just to, to, to help us lean in and sense, Lord, is there something more that you want me to leave it all, in whatever category that is, and to move into something that's going to really, really, really take faith. But I'm confident in you. Jim Elliott wrote in his journal, as a young person, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And listen, at, at some point, he was just like you, sitting in a setting like this with a journal opening and writing that down. And the day would come where he would live it and where he would die for it. Maybe that's us here. I want to I invite us to consider this. He gave it all and he gained it all. Howard Guinness writes this, and it's quoted in the book Shining Like Stars. Ben, if you want to go ahead and come back up, ma'am. He says, where are the young men and women of this generation who will hold their lives cheap 
and be faithful even unto death. Who will lose their lives for Christ, flinging them away for love of him? Where are those who will live dangerously and be reckless in this service? Where are the young people of prayer? Where are those who count God's word of more importance to them than their daily food? Where are those who, like Moses of old, commune with God face to face as a man speaks with his friend? Where are God's people in this day of God's power? And listen, I, I know this. I know we, I, can, I can read that quote, and, and even still, it just is like noise. It's like, hey, yeah, that's a nice way of saying it, I guess. And we can allow ourselves to go unscathed. Can I just plead with you? Don't do that. Do you trust God? Do you trust that He's good? Do you trust that what He really wants, we said last night, what He is always been after for all eternity is filling up your life to overflowing with joy and he says hey this is what I've got for you don't throw it away don't trade it in for some temporary fleeting pleasure now don't trade it in for your Xbox <laughs> don't trade it in for what's easy five minutes and come to the end of your life and say I lived for five minutes and I lived for the next five minutes and I lived for the next five minutes and it was a waste and oh man I, I avoided so much just out of stupid fear there were people that God wanted me to speak to there, there were ways he wanted me to move there were risks that he wanted me to take there was a vocation and a calling on my life. Somehow I managed to avoid that on, on something that now seems so cheap. And listen, you will, you will come to the end of your life and you will say that if you've wasted it. But if we give everything now, there will be no regret. Eternity will swallow it whole in unending delight. Let's be confident in this, God. Let's be confident that He's real. Let's be confident that He is. Let's be confident in His reward. Let's be confident in His resurrection that has the last word over death, over anything that this world and its fallen priorities and upside down ideas says, hey, that's death. And God says, that's exactly the doorway that I want you to walk through. Go through it. Go through it. It leads to me. It leads to life. It leads to happiness. Let's stand together. just want us to take a moment to just let the Lord visit with us and just process what, what has God shown you this weekend and I trust you're coming away with something I trust he has 
communicated something. He's put, he's put his finger on something that he wants you to leave behind. A practice he wants you to stop or start or how he just wants your affections. How he wants your confidence. And I want you to right now, you pray in faith. You just, you turn your heart toward him and you, and you say, God, I need your help. But I want what you want. Lead me into it. Lead me into it no matter the cost. Because I know that I can be foolish and immature. And I can think like a toddler sometimes. And I think that's what I really need. That's what I really want. And even next year it won't even matter to me. So God, give me clarity. Allow your thinking and your perspective to invade mine and convince me. Your purposes are good. God, give me courage. Courage to leave behind what I've settled for that's normal. Lord, I don't want to avoid how you desire to use me. I don't want to avoid what's hard or difficult. I want to be fearless. Which is another way of saying, I want to have faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because those who draw near to Him must believe that He is and that He rewards those who seek Him. And God, we believe. Lord, we just tell you that today. We believe in you. We trust you. We place our confidence in you. We want more of you. So help us, Lord. Let's sing together.